Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Okay, today on the show, I welcome Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen is a 12-time New York Times bestselling author, physician, adult and child psychiatrist, and founder of Amen Clinics. He is also the founder of BrainMD, a fast-growing science-based nutraceutical company, and Amen University, which has trained thousands of medical and mental health professionals on the methods that he has developed. Earlier this year, Dr. Amen released his newest book, You Happier, The Seven Neuroscience Secrets of Feeling Good Based on Your Brain Type. Well, perhaps you didn't know that you have a specific brain type. In our conversation, Dr. Amen and I discuss how activity in specific parts of the brain can indicate five different types. We talk about how different brain types have proclivities to depression, ADD, ADHD, OCD, and addiction. And Dr. Amen reveals his seven secrets to happiness, one of which is knowing your brain type so you can adopt the right happiness-inducing protocols for your specific brain. And we talk about brain-healthy foods and rituals, and Dr. Amen spells out the 11 risk factors that can degrade brain functionality. Lastly, we discuss how happiness is not just a personal quest, but a moral obligation. Now, if you're interested in functional and integrative medicine-based programs with teachers like Dr. Mark Hyman, Dr. Zach Bush, Dr. Mary Pardee, and Dr. Roger Schwell, and many others on topics such as gut health, sleep, immunity, hormone balancing, Ayurveda, and nutrition. Well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire course library, which includes more than 100 courses on health, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. Now, over the past year of interviewing doctors 
and adopting many new protocols in my own personal life, I have begun to think of happiness as synonymous with health. And certainly today's conversation only reinforces this theory. So without further delay, I present to you, Dr. Daniel Amen. Okay, Dr. Daniel Amen, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Great to be with you. So great to be with you. Makes me happy. Yeah. Well, if there is, I suppose, any single project that unites all of humanity, it is our individual quest uh, to be happy. And uh, you have dedicated the better part of your life to understanding the human brain, but specifically in relationship to happiness. And I'd love to you know, spend some time talking about that generally. And then, of course, you recently published a book this year called You Happier, which delves into the four circles of and seven secrets to happiness and walks us through all sorts of uh, neuroscience-based tools and habits and choices that we can adopt to, to lead a happier and purpose-driven life. So, um, And I, I got to say that this work could not be more timely just given the, the state of the world. Um, you know, few people actively choose to be unhappy, but uh, I think it's clear that rates of depression and addiction and mental illness are cresting. It's reading some statistics about suicide rates um, that have increased some 30 some odd percent over the last generation. So those are just like a, a couple metrics that I think indicate as a society that we are patently unhappy. So your work is so important. Um, so I'm excited to explore the uh, secrets of finding happiness that you outline in your book. But I wonder if we could start at the opposite end of the equation and uh, you could outline what are some of the conditions and behaviors that lead to unhappiness? Well, so many things. Our society is really against us. And uh, I wrote a book a number of years ago called The Brain Warrior's Way because I just came to believe you're in a war for the health of your brain. Everywhere you go, someone is trying to shove bad food down your throat that will kill you early. And... Um, fascinating new study I've been thinking about where they took sugar, stevia, and sucralose or Splenda, and they measured their learning and memory and executive function before and after six weeks and even did some brain imaging work. And, you know, sugar is just rampant. There's 150 pounds of sugar on average. That's what people eat a year. And, you know, the little yellow packets are just everywhere. And what they found was stevia really didn't do anything negative to brain function. Um, but sugar decreased learning, so encoding memories. But Splenda decreased encoding memory or learning, long-term memory, and executive function. So you just pop three or four of those little yellow packets in your coffee 
and you're more likely to make a bad decision. And it also showed increased slow wave activity in the front part of your brain, which means your brake's not working that well. And these substances are just everywhere. And if you mix that with the negative news, which I always say the news is no longer the news. The news is about scaring you to keep your eyeballs there longer. So um, the people who advertise will make more money and then addictive gadgets. And it's a mess. And that's why we've seen increasing rates of anxiety, depression, ADHD, which is quadrupled since I was uh, in my training to be a child psychiatrist. I mean, it's just nuts how these things are going the wrong way. Uh, <coughs> not to mention obesity has just continued to skyrocket. And there's a connection between physical health and mental health. I published three studies that showed as your weight goes up, the actual physical size and functioning of the brain goes down. And so I'm not a big fan of the body positivity movement. It's like, well, it doesn't really matter if you take care of your body. It's like, no, it matters. <laughs> you know, why did we force people really to wear helmets when they ride a motorcycle? Because it's not just about you. Is if you get a bad head injury, everybody's got to pay for that. And I think the same thing is true with health. It's not just about you. Ultimately, it's about generations of you. Yeah, that's a fascinating point. I mean, we really do live within a holobiont, um, a mutually interdependent uh, system. Uh, even though day to day we feel like individuals, we are incredibly interconnected and I think it's interesting around the body body positivity movement I think there's a delineation there between not shaming people but also being able to be honest about science and as you say you know correlations for example between obesity and depression um, so I, I think that uh, um, I'm glad to hear you say that, and I think it's a, I think it's an interesting point, and, and I think it's a needle um, to thread, um, because oftentimes, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've looked at food deserts, for example, uh, these areas where people can only avail themselves of processed food or convenience store food, and um, so I, I, and the rates of diabetes and obesity and diabetes in, in those neighborhoods are, are disproportionately high. Um, so we can't necessarily blame those people um, for their condition. Uh, at the same time, we need to be able to have honest scientific conversation um, that shows some of these correlations. Yeah, no, we don't want to blame anybody, but we also don't want to lie. We yeah. don't want to be in denial and you know, the food deserts, those people are victims of the war going on in our society. But you can't say there's not a war because, yes. because there is. 
And your brain uses 20 to 30% of the calories you consume. And so if you don't give it the proper nutrition, then it's not going to function right. And if it's not going to function right, you'll never really get out of poverty because, you know, getting out of poverty, yes, of course it's opportunity, but it's opportunity mixed with decision-making. And if we don't nourish the organ of decision-making, we're going to continue with all the bad decisions that are happening. And, you know, monster corporations, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, whatever, um, they're making lots of money off of our early death. And then other corporations like Pfizer uh, or Eli Lilly, they're making lots of money, right? not really fixing the problem because, you know, and I'm a psychiatrist, I heard that psychiatrists really didn't want to be in the order business or psychiatric medication companies. They didn't want to be in the order business, like with antibiotics, you know, take it, get rid of your pneumonia and you're better. They wanted to be in the reorder business. So once right, you took right. an antidepressant, they wanted you to keep taking it. And that's a bad model um, because the medications many psychiatrists use, and, and I'm not opposed to medicine, so I don't want to go there. But if I put you on certain medications, they change your brain to need them in order for you to feel normal. And that's a problem. And so when I went to medical school, they just hammered us with first do no harm, use the least toxic, most effective treatments. And so happiness is not generally found in antidepressants. Um, now, they often will decrease depression, but at the same time, they decrease happiness because they numb you. And so when I think of happiness, I think the first foundational secret of happiness is you need a healthy brain. Because if your brain's not healthy, if it doesn't have adequate blood flow and neurotransmitters, you're not going to be happy. Right. I mean, and we all hear stories of people who are extremely successful, famous, who kill themselves because they weren't happy. And oftentimes it came from a brain that was unhealthy, which could have come from a head injury or mm -hmm. could have come from COVID because COVID changes the brain in a negative way or Lyme disease or mercury toxicity. Um, or a whole host of other problems I talk about in the book. Yeah, I think the point that you make that the brain is really the hardware and you have to tend to the functionality of the brain first uh, before you do the programming, <laughs> um, I think is a salient one. And, you know, you do a great job in the book outlining um, all of these contributing factors in our society that lead to unhappiness. So we talk about sugar or alcohol. Um, you brought up McDonald's, for example, that very specifically markets a package of food called the Happy Meal. And you address this straight on in the book. Um, 
but the happy meal, meal makes you patently unhappy if you're looking at really the knock-on impacts of, uh, of what that kind of food does to your physiology. And it seems that more often than not, um, short-term pleasure is maladaptive to long-term happiness. Um, and, uh, and I think you can trace that into, in, in many aspects. I mean, I think you also talked quite eloquently about this craving that we have in the modern world for the latest tech gadget or the shiny new object that's always out there on the horizon and the hedonic treadmill that that can put us on. And wears out the pleasure centers in mm. your brain. You know, the, the pleasure centers are real. It's an area called the nucleus accumbens. It responds to dopamine with happiness and motivation and drive. And when you hit those too hard, too often, you begin to wear them out and then you feel flat. And I talk about fame and I've been blessed to see a number of really famous people who I adore, but you know, you, you never want to dump dopamine. You want to drip dopamine. So it's an interesting concept I've been thinking about for a long time, right? If you're Miley Cyrus and you're on tour in Argentina and you have thousands of people cheering you and pounding on your car, you, you know, initially it's awesome. But then over time, it's not awesome. It's irritating and agitating. And because it's worn out your pleasure stores. So no wonder these young stars started using alcohol or marijuana or cocaine. The problem is it wears them out further and they end up to be a mess. Yeah. I want to go back just a little bit with this idea that happiness is a moral obligation. Yeah. And it's, it's like, why do I say that? Actually, I got it from Dennis Prager, but I love it so much because when I grew up in the 1960s, the 50s and 60s and early 70s in the San Fernando Valley, went to Catholic school, that idea was nowhere to be found. I didn't find it at school. I certainly didn't find it at home. Um, happiness is a moral obligation. And it's like, this is a serious topic because of how you impact other people. Just ask anyone who was raised by an unhappy parent or married to an unhappy spouse or raising an unhappy child, whether or not happiness is an ethical issue. And I guarantee you, they're gonna say yes. So again, you know, to the point, it's just, it's not about you. It's about everybody around you. And if you're miserable, um, that infects uh, other people. So this isn't a selfish endeavor. It's an important endeavor. Plus who doesn't want to be happier? It's just, there were no classes in brain health. One, there's still no classes. I was just at a, um, Orange County Department of Education conference. I'm like, are there any brain health classes in schools in California? And the answer was no, I was horrified. Yeah, well, my daughter is a budding neurologist, and uh, yeah, she has to find summer programs in order to avail herself of 
the kind of education she's looking for. You know, she's 15, so she still has a good runway ahead of her. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I've often thought about that in terms of nutrition, in terms of grief, you know, all, all of these um, areas that we are, we have very, very little curriculum or education for, but that are intrinsically just a part of life, but we're not educated in any way to deal with them. I recently interviewed a brilliant guy, Gabor Mate, and essentially, like, if you're under go some form of neglect or abuse that induces trauma and you have no training um, in terms of how to communicate around that, well, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to stuff it down. You're going to disassociate from it. Um, and essentially, you become alienated from yourself. And then you go and seek out all these external agents uh, to assuage your discontents, you know, alcohol or drugs or gambling or porn or fill in the blank. Um, so I think, you know, if we could get some education <laughs> around these things at, at a younger age, we certainly would increase the happiness quotient. Um, I wonder if you could uh, identify some of the secrets that you talk about in the book, because I think social science more generally has shown its correlations between happiness and laughter and community and novel experiences and being in nature and philanthropy. Um, but you seem to have keyed in on specific areas of happiness that have been largely overlooked. And uh, hopefully we get to spend a little time diving into each aspect, but at a high level, can you enumerate your seven secrets of happiness that no one is talking about? Yes, and each one has a little action step or a little question you ask yourself. And, you know, we talked about the first one is brain health is foundational to happiness. And so the question is, whatever I do during the day, like talking to you or drinking my tea, is this good for my brain or bad for it? That if you really want to be happy, you need to have a healthy brain. And that takes a series of thousands of decisions every week. Is this good for my brain or bad for it? And most second graders would get a 90%. So I went to my daughter's second grade class and I wrote 20 things on the board. And I'm like, just separate them for me. Good for your brain or bad for it. So Football, soccer, alcohol, cigarettes, marijuana, they all put in the bad category when they were seven years old. So that wasn't hard for them. The only thing they missed was orange juice, which they put in the good category. And it absolutely belongs in the bad category because it's too much sugar. Whenever you unwrap sugar from its fiber source, uh, so fruit juice, it turns toxic in your body. Um, so that's secret number one. Is it good for my brain or bad for it? Secret number two is happiness is really different for everyone. So yes, a lot of people said these are the generalizations of happiness, but quite frankly, novelty works really well for brain type two. Um, it's a disaster for brain type three. So based on our brain imaging work at Amon Clinics, we're now over 210,000 scans on people from 150 countries. One of our first lessons is sort of everybody's got a different brain. 
the thinking there's one secret to happiness is silly. And I list five primary brain types, balanced, oh, lots of things will make you happy, spontaneous, you need novelty, that's my ADD group, persistent, you love routine, it's my OCD group, sensitive, crave relationships, so that group was hurt most in the pandemic with the isolation, and cautious, they need safety. And so people go jumping out of an airplane will make you happy. Absolutely for brain type two. It'll make all the other types worse. So know your type of brain and then you can go, well, what makes me uniquely happy? And so the question is, am I doing something every day that makes me uniquely happy? And I love routine. So like I make my wife the same brain healthy cappuccino in the morning, the same brain healthy hot chocolate at night. And I just, I love the consistency, the routine, and I'm not jumping out of an airplane. It's just <laughs> not happening. Uh, three is nourish your brain. So what are the supplements that increase happiness? And I actually spend a lot of time talking about saffron. I'm a huge yeah, yeah. fan of saffron. In fact, my supplement company, BrainMD, makes happy saffron. Why? 24 randomized, controlled, double-blind studies showing it's equally effective to antidepressants to boost your mood. But rather than putting a lid on your happy feelings, it increases happiness as well. And it improves memory and sexual functioning. And I'm like, happiness, sex, and memory. So right at the beginning of the pandemic is when I released it. I have not missed one day of it. Um, and, you know, I think I survived the pandemic really pretty well, even though, you know, like everybody else had a whole bunch of bad things happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, secret number four, I just dearly love, it's love food that loves you back. It's you're in a relationship with food. The food you eat will make you happy or it'll make you sad and the lies are just rampant in society so coca-cola's slogan is open happiness that's a lie it's open <laughs> diabetes open right, right. obesity open depression open dementia uh, open inflammation it's like no or happy meals as we already talked about um there's a study, I think it's from Australia, that there's a linear correlation between the number of fruits and vegetables you eat a day and your level of happiness. And mm. so food is critical. And the question is, is do I choose foods I love that love me back? So it's honored that relationship. And I don't know if you've ever been in a bad relationship. I was in a bad relationship, actually several. And, and I'm not doing that anymore. I'm like married to my best friend and I'm damn sure not doing it with food, right? Because I have way more control over that than my relationships. Um, five is master your mind and gain psychological distance from the noise in your head. So the first four really about optimizing the hardware of happiness, your brain. Five is the software of happiness. It's, I teach people to kill the ants, the automatic negative thoughts, 
put in the daily habits of happiness. So I start every day. I recommend everybody do this. I start every day with today is going to be a great day. And that way my mind finds as soon as I wake up and my feet hit the floor, today is going to be a great day. And then I start looking for why is it going to be a great day? Um, and when I go to bed at night, and this is my favorite of all the things I've said so far, whenever I go to bed, I say a prayer and then I go, what went well today? And I start from the beginning of the day and I'm on a treasure hunt of what were the coolest moments of this day. Hmm. And it, it works so well. And I tell a story in the book about the day my dad died. And it was an awful day. But when I went to bed that night, because it's my habit, I went, what went well today? And yes, the voice in my head, the critic in my head went, you're a bad son and all of that. But then I just went and, and I went to three specific memories of the day that were so tender, so sweet, so lovely. And then I went to sleep because I know how to manage my mind. And that exercise is gold. Um, six is, uh, I love so much as well, is if you want to be happy, you have to give it away. And you give it away by noticing what you like about other people more than what you don't. And I know this minute I could get my wife to yell at me. I know how to do it. I generally choose not to, <laughs> or I can make her smile and just being by what I notice, right? Do I notice what I like or am I noticing what I don't like? You want to be happy, learn how to give happiness away. And seven, which really could be one, but it's seven. It's live each day based on clearly defined values, purpose, and goals. Um, purposeful people live longer, they're happier. And I just find, you know, and I've been a psychiatrist for four decades. Most people have never taken the time to define what do I want in my relationships, in my work, in my money, mm -hmm. my physical, emotional, spiritual health. And I just think it's so critical. It's a foundational exercise for me. And I don't have any tattoos, but if I did, the first one would be, does it fit? So whatever I say, whatever I do, I just ask myself, well, does it fit the goals I have for my life? And if you take those seven things, which are often not talked about, um, I just think it's foundational to happiness. I'd love to go back to secret number one around brain type um, and how we encourage people to know their brain type, because I think many people would be surprised to know that there actually are different brain types in the first place. And this ability to diagnose various brain types speaks directly to technology that Amen Clinics have developed and leveraged to study activity in specific parts of the brain. So can you describe a little bit of how you do this? So for the last 30, 
two years at Amen Clinics, we've been using a study called Brain Spect Imaging. It's a nuclear medicine study that looks at blood flow and activity. It looks at how your brain works. And it basically shows us three things, good activity, too little or too much. And then based on what we see, we work to balance your brain. But very early on, I realized there was not one form of depression. I actually hate the diagnosis of depression because it's sort of like chest pain. Nobody gets a diagnosis of chest pain because it doesn't tell you what's causing it and it doesn't tell you what to do for it. And, you know, as I sort of subtype depression, anxiety, ADHD, addiction, I'm like, well, sort of everybody's different, that they're balanced people that overall are just sort of normal and healthy, but that's not the majority. They're spontaneous people that have sleepy frontal lobes. They're persistent people where their frontal lobes actually work too hard and they can be worried, rigid and flexible. If things don't go their way, they get upset. I mean, they're normal, but rigid. Um, and then there's sensitive people that crave relationships and cautious people that crave safety. And I'm like, oh, so these are the five primary types. Now they have combinations of these types. So there's a total of 16 types. Um, in the book, I actually teach people how to know their type and it's, you know, without coming to the clinic and getting a scan. And I, I find it's just so helpful. We've done 5 million uh, brain type tests. And I just, one of my new doctors sent me hers and she goes, it's so right on. And I'm <laughs> like, Did it, is there anybody in your family that has a history of addiction? And her dad was a raging alcoholic um, because with type six, where you tend to be impulsive and compulsive, it often goes uh, with addictions. Yeah. Does activity in certain parts of the brain have any correlation to the production of certain hormones and, and neurotransmitters? And, and I suppose, what is the relationship between neuromodulators and happiness in, in general? Well, for this book, we actually studied happiness. We gave 500 consecutive patients the Oxford happiness questionnaire. And then we looked at their scans and people who scored high on happiness had the healthiest brains. People who scored low on happiness had lower blood flow, especially to the front part of the brain and the pleasure centers, talked earlier about the nucleus accumbens, they had decreased activity in that part of the brain. So if you're doing things to decrease blood flow to your brain, like smoking or vaping, alcohol, marijuana, not exercising, being overweight, um, you're just less likely to be happy. Yeah, you mentioned blood flow. So you have a wonderful mnemonic uh, called Bright Minds, um, which in some ways uh, outlines the core components of brain hardware functionality, uh, if you will, and, and blood flow being a B is number one. Um, I wonder if you could just hover over a couple different um, elements of, of hardware health, uh, including blood flow and 
potentially inflammation and um, and uh, and diabetes and sleep. So we can understand some of the most important components to uh, to the risk factors that are associated with brain functionality. So if you want to keep your brain healthy or rescue it, if it's headed for trouble, we have to prevent or treat the 11 major risk factors that steal your mind. And we know what they are. And the good news is almost all of them are preventable or treatable. And so we created the mnemonic Bright Minds to help people remember. And as you said, B is for blood flow, low blood flow. It's the number one brain imaging predictor of Alzheimer's disease. And it's associated with depression, ADHD, um, and unhappiness. And so with each of these risk factors, how do you, we know if you have it and what do you do about it? And uh, R is retirement and aging. The older you get, the more serious you need to be about brain health and new learning is absolutely critical. I is for inflammation, a major cause of psychiatric problems that nobody knows about. And just like simple things, like taking omega-3 fatty acids, a probiotic, optimizing gut health, flossing because gum disease is a major cause of heart disease, but also brain problems. G is for genetics, but I often say um, genes are not a death sentence. They should be a wake-up call. As I mentioned, you know, I have obesity and heart disease in my family, but I'm not overweight and I don't have heart disease. Um, because I know I need to be on an obesity prevention program or a heart disease prevention program. If you have addiction in your family, you need to be on an addiction prevention program. Um, H is head trauma and head trauma is like the sleeper problem. It's an epidemic. Uh, we let little children hit soccer balls with their head, play tackle football, you know, um, snowboard without helmets. I mean, it's just insane because you have a concussion that can change the trajectory of the rest of your life. T is toxins. You know, I've mentioned sort of drugs and alcohol. I'm not a big fan of, but general anesthesia can actually be toxic to your brain. And I don't know if you've seen the news, you know, recently they pulled some sunscreen from the market because they showed it caused cancer. And so as the dermatologists made us afraid of the sun, they actually put products on our body that increase death through cancer. And so uh, oh yeah. toxins are a big deal. M is mental health issues, especially early childhood trauma um, increases unhappiness. The second I is immunity and infections. If you get COVID, you have a 25% increased risk in the next four months of being diagnosed with a new onset mental health problem. Um, wow. N is for neurohormone disorders, so thyroid, testosterone, DHEA. You should get your hormones checked every year and optimize. D is diabetes. So we talked about that a little bit. It's a combination of being overweight and having high blood sugar. Either of those shrinks your brain and gives you problems. Um, so diet really is essential. Um, and even if you're in a food desert, uh, cause I know we talked about that earlier. My wife always says compared to what, 
that even in a food desert, you have better choices, you know, so let's just think 7-Eleven for a minute. You can go for the nuts or you can go for the candy bar. You can go for the water or you can go for the soda. Um, you can go for the sparkling water or the sparkling wine. <laughs> you know, I think even yeah. seven-year-olds, when you go good for your brain or bad for it, they're going to like go probably should go for the water rather than the soda. Um, and S is sleep that if you're not getting seven hours of sleep at night, you have lower overall blood flow to your brain and more bad decisions. And also sleep seems to turn on this glymphatic system, right? Which is somewhat associated with the, the cleansing of beta amyloid uh, proteins, which have been historically associated with, with Alzheimer's. I know there's a lot of uh, controversy in terms of the source of Alzheimer's at this juncture. But also sleep um, is very important just for restoration of the body. REM sleep, very important for me memory consolidation. And it seems that insomnia is an epidemic right now. Um, do you have particular kinds of guidance or tips that can help people uh, upregulate their sleep? So with all of these risk factors, it's like, okay, how do I know if I have it? And what do I do about it? And yeah. with sleep, so sleep envy, you want to care about it. Um, avoid things that hurt it. So caffeine. Um Blue light, not in the morning. Blue light in the morning is great, but blue light after dark will shut off the production of melatonin. And then a colder room, a quieter room, a darker room, all of those seem to be very helpful. And then rituals at night to calm your brain. I love hypnosis. We actually have... Um, an app called brain fit life that we love that has hypnosis audios. Um, there's also some sleep tracks that can help. Um, and then, um, rituals like what went well today and really directing your mind to help you rather than allowing it to hurt you. Melatonin can be helpful, but most people get the dose of melatonin wrong. They take too much. So it's like 0.3 milligrams uh, is a more physiological dose. So less in this case may in fact be better. Theanine, magnesium, ashwagandha um, can all be helpful as well. But don't reach for Ambien and alcohol. They may help you short term, but then they steal your brain and you'll have to take them in order for you to feel normal. I, mean, I know people have been on Ambien for 20 years. So I've read in the book, and I've heard you talk about this before, a curious ritual that you have of giving your brain a name. Uh, and, and I thought it was humorous enough uh, or quirky enough that, that I followed suit and gave my brain a name. But Maybe you could talk a little bit about the utility 
uh, of that practice and uh, and what your brain's name is, if you care to disclose it. Well, I'd love to know your the name of your brain. It's such yeah. a fun exercise. It is. Well, I I was mine is very silly. So the name of my brain is Fedge Onsark, which is essentially my name backwards. <laughs> and I felt that would be a applicable or an apt name for my brain or my alter ego. Um, I love that so much because when you believe the lies it tells you, it's sort of like yeah. it has you backwards or upside down. The opposite of what you really want. So I did a, I, we do a podcast called The Brain Warrior's Way. And I had Stephen Hayes on who developed a psychotherapy called ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And it's based on a concept called psychological distancing. If you can distance yourself from the noise in your head, you just become so much happier. And when he talked about giving your mind a name, almost immediately, I knew I would name my mind Hermie because Hermie was my pet raccoon when I grew up in the San Fernando Valley um, in the late 1960s, actually sold raccoons in pet stores. And I bought her. I didn't know it was a girl when I named her. I bought her and actually until she got pregnant. Uh, Hussy. Um, anyways, that's another story. <laughs> I, I, and I loved her so much, but she was a troublemaker. She like TP'd my mother's bathroom. She <laughs> ate all the goldfish out of my sister's aquarium. She'd leave raccoon poo around the house. I mean, there was always drama that Hermie was creating. And it's just like my mind that you know there's so many good things in my life but periodically harmony will just hold up a sign like you're a failure or you're a fool or you're an idiot or whatever it is and when i gave my mind the name it just i just got more distance from the stupidity in my head and now when she acts up i put her on her back and i tickle her Initially, I just like put her in the cage, right? Metaphorically in my mind, just put her in the cage. But then, you know, the more I remembered my relationship with her is that when she got troubled, I didn't get angry at her. I would distract her and just be playful with her. And I think for me, it's just such a good strategy. And so many of my patients love this strategy. Yeah, I think it's incredibly useful to be able to witness thoughts as phenomena arising and subsiding in consciousness moment to moment, but not fixate on them or identify with them such that we then become these negative thoughts or limiting thoughts. So I want to respect uh, your time constraints today, but I can't help but ask you uh, um, a little bit about racket sports and i i only ask because i'm an avid tennis player so i grew up being competitively playing i played for a year in college and subsequent to my move to los angeles i became i got involved in all these usda teams and i play multiple times a week and i believe you are an avid tennis player of the table variety but uh i've also just heard in general um that 
folks that engage in racket sports really maintain a healthy brain and generally have greater longevity and health span. Right. People play racket sports live longer than everybody else. And I think it's because they activate the cerebellum in the back bottom part of the brain. Cerebellum is Latin for little brain, and it has half the brain's neurons. And so if you're getting your eyes and hands and feet all working together while you think about strategy and the spin on the ball, that is really a whole brain exercise and so much better for you than football or soccer, running, even weightlifting because of the coordination exercise while you're doing something that's aerobic. It's a very special uh, and something I think everyone should do. Like I'm a huge fan. Let's get football out of schools because it's brain damaging and let's get ping pong tables and tennis rackets uh, in. Yeah, well, I hereby publicly challenge you to a ping pong match. Uh, <laughs> I think you have the advantage. You have the upper hand uh, on a table of that dimension, but we'll, maybe we'll start there. Uh, well, Dr. Daniel Amen, thank you so much for spending uh, this time with us uh, today on the Commune Podcast. I know um, how important this topic is. Um, and I'm not just saying that because we recently put a survey out to our 1.5 million active email community and the number one um, issue uh, that came back was brain health. And uh, I'm not surprised per se, but to see the numbers like that, it was, it was astounding. And so, uh, like I said, your work could not be more timely. And of course, you've dedicated the better part of your life to it. So very grateful for that. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Daniel Amen. Check out his new book, You Happier to learn about specific protocols that you can adopt to optimize your brain health and be happier. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort is put into this show's creation week over week, and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with constructive criticism and suggestions at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible Week over week, including Jacob Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Alexa Pepperman, Ruby Foster, Emma Fret, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>